Stephen Kubaki disappeared. 15 months. That's a long time to be gone, and it's an even longer time to have absolutely no memory of. We've talked about all of the paranormal and conspiracy, I say that lightly, possibilities, but it's also important to have a healthy level of skepticism as a believer of things that, well, go bump in the night. There are mundane reasons that he could have vanished, and the fact that they're not supernatural doesn't make them any less terrifying. The things that we are about to discuss in this episode probably scare me more than anything else in this season, which is fitting since it's the final episode before we recap and share opinions and answer questions next week. Hey guys, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Haunted Detective Podcast. I'm your favorite paranormal believer, Kelsey Childs, but everyone calls me the paranormal Sherlock Holmes. No one fucking calls you that, bro. I haven't heard one person yet, and I have been here for a few episodes now, and not anyone has fucking commented that. But anyways, I'm just Pam. (laughs) (laughs) So let's open the case file for this episode of Stephen Kubaki. Now, here's a good question. What the fuck could cause someone to lose their memory for 15 months like Stephen did? What mechanism in his brain suddenly went, okay, you're going to black out and forget everything now? While something like this is rare, it's not actually unheard of. And for this reason, because Pamela is good at this stuff and she went to school for this, I'm going to hand the mic over to her for this section. So just for the record, I'm not a doctor, nor am I a certified therapist or any of that sort. However, I had the opportunity while obtaining my criminal justice degree to meet some pretty incredible people and work alongside them in active cases as well as cold cases. So I have a decent amount of in-depth research experience that I get to utilize every so often. But for now, let's get into learning about dissociative amnesia. Are you ready, Kelsey? Oh, this topic scares me. So it's just, it's, it's one of those things that we don't have a full grasp on why it happens or how it happens. And for that reason, it scares me. So, I mean, that's fair. The brain is, is a terrifying being. (laughs) I I think that psychology, I'm, I'm more scared of psychology like this and people than Mm -hmm. I am of ghosts. Let's just say it that way. Agreed. Agreed. Terrified of people, I'd rather face ghosts. Okay, you're dragging me down the rabbit hole this episode, so let's go. All right, let's do it. So the following research is by David Spiegel, MD from Stanford University School of Medicine. Quote, Dissociative amnesia is a type of disassociative disorder that involves inability to recall important personal information that would not typically be lost with ordinary forgetting. It is usually caused by trauma or stress. Diagnosis is based on history after ruling out other causes of amnesia. Treatment is psychotherapy, sometimes combined with medication-facilitated interviews or even hypnosis. In dissociative amnesia, the information lost would normally be part of the conscious awareness and would normally be described as autobiographic memory. Although the forgotten information may be inaccessible to the consciousness, it sometimes continues to influence behavior. And an example Spiegel mentions was, let's say, that a woman who was assaulted in an elevator refuses to ride in elevators even though she cannot recall the assault. He goes on to say that dissociative amnesia is likely 
underdetected. The amnesia appears to be caused by traumatic or stressful experiences endured or witnessed. Examples include physical, sexual abuse, rape, combat, genocide, natural disasters, even serious financial troubles, or by tremendous internal conflict, such as guilt-written impulses or actions, or apparently unresolvable interpersonal difficulties or even criminal behaviors, end quote. Wait, so when you say criminal behaviors, do you mean that the person did something illegal and mm-hmm. therefore traumatized themselves? Like if yeah. if someone went out and, and took someone else's life, mm-hmm. they could suffer from disassociative amnesia because of what they experienced internally and externally from that? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Damn. You can even witness a crime and it can have that effect on you. I wanted to make a note and cite my sources like a good educated lunatic does. And David Spiegel, as previously mentioned, as well as Angelica Stellui and Hans J. Markowitz on their published research on dissociative amnesia. Now, how do you even diagnose something as complicated as this? Well, David Spiegel stated that a diagnosis requires a medical and psychiatric examination to rule out other possible causes. Really quick, wouldn't that be the case? So if you have someone with a psychiatric disorder or Mm -hmm. illness, whatever you want to call it, uh, difference, then if it's extreme, like bipolar, schizophrenia, disassociative Mm -hmm. amnesia, they have to rule out physical causes Mm -hmm. and other mental health issues like stressors, any medication, drugs, stuff like that, before they make a final diagnosis. Right. So they have to do that because dissociative amnesia is so incredibly difficult to diagnose. Yeah. There's so many related factors that could be involved in this. So they have to do so many tests and it can be very tiring because they go through an MRI to rule out any structural causes. They go through EEGs to rule out seizure disorder. They even do blood and urine tests to rule out illicit drug use and any other possible toxic causes, as Spiegel says. Now, on top of all of those, you also need a psychological test, uh, multiple to be exact. These can help characterize the nature of the dissociative experiences. So then after all that's said and done, I'm guessing you go and you see a psychiatrist. Yes. And then you get the official diagnosis as per the final criteria in the DSM-5, the Diagnostic Systems Manual. Right. I mean, so let's say that you did get diagnosed with this. You got diagnosed with dissociative amnesia. Spiegel goes on to talk about the treatment of this. Oh, there's treatment. So to recover memory, as he says, a supportive environment and sometimes hypnosis or medicated-induced semi-hypnotic states are necessary, as well as psychotherapy to deal with issues associated with recovered memories of traumatic or stressful events. So my question is because there was a phenomenon with hypnosis. I think it was like the late 80s, early 90s, where it just became a treatment fad. It it, it was viral in the terms of treatment, right? So they were accidentally inserting fake memories into people's heads. Wow. And so they stopped using hypnosis as like a standard of practice. Let's say you were a therapist with all the knowledge you have. If you were to not use hypnosis, because we don't know, we might have some people who are suffering from disassociative amnesia or just Mm -hmm. trauma-related memory loss. Like, what would you recommend that they do? 
seek help immediately. <laughs> I mean, I know I say that in this most serious tense. If you feel that you are forgetting a big portion of time in your life, immediately seek help. Well, I know that was a lot of information. And honestly, that is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to dissociative amnesia. Yes, there there is a lot more to it. And from that explanation and from, I guess, the general psychological analysis standpoint, most people don't lose weeks or months, right? Most people lose one specific memory. But in the case of Hannah Up, dissociative amnesia was actually fatal. August 28, 2008 was any normal day for Hannah. She woke up and went for a run, ready to start her first day working for Thurgood Marshall Academy in Harlem, in New York City. But when her students filed into their Spanish class, Miss Up was nowhere to be found. Her roommate found all of her stuff on the bedroom floor, her purse, which held her wallet, passport, and cell phone, but Hannah was nowhere to be found. Then around two weeks later, Hannah was seen on CCTV footage going into the Apple store. She was stopped by a man who asked if she was the missing teacher, but she just kind of like brushed him off and kept walking. The odd thing is that Hannah was in the same clothing that she left for her run, a sports bra and shorts. But things just kept getting weirder from there. She was seen various times around New York City, at the gym, the library, even logging into her Gmail account. And while these sightings gave her friends and family hope, there was still a huge question burning in everyone's mind. Why is she missing? Did she run away? How is she surviving without money, place to sleep, or food? I mean, those are pretty common sense questions. I don't blame them at all for trying to figure those out. Like, that's that's insane. Yeah, so only one of these questions would be answered. Aw. But the thing that everyone has asked me, I posted this case on TikTok, and mm-hmm. the main question I got was, wait, if she's logging into her Gmail, then obviously she remembers. And my response is always, much like patients who suffer from Alzheimer's or mm-hmm. dementia, they often have moments of lucidity that involve their day-to-day activities. So it's almost like a muscle memory thing. So if logging into her Gmail account was something that she did on a daily basis, it would mm-hmm. have been just second nature and she would have been in like kind of a zombie fugue state, right? Like muscle memory? Muscle memory, yeah. And she would have just logged right into it with no notion of why, how, what, where, when, why, you know? And so I said why Hmm. twice, but you guys get the, you you get the point. (laughs) Even patients with Alzheimer's have moments of lucidity where they remember, but it's not enough to keep them functional or able to care for themselves. So in Hannah's case, that moment of lucidity could have literally been the 20 seconds it took her to log into her Gmail. She saw a computer, she said, oh, Gmail, logged in, and then As it's shown on security footage, she just walked away. It was three weeks after she went missing on September 16th when the captain of a Staten Island ferry boat saw a woman floating face down in the water. Him and his crew were convinced that she was dead. I mean, I think that would have been the assumption of anyone who saw that. Yeah, that's also terrifying to see. Oh, yeah. They pulled her up out of the water by her feet and she showed the first signs of life, gasping for air and coughing up water. She was immediately transported to a hospital. So let's switch back over to Hannah's perspective now. She went for a run and woke up in an ambulance, thinking it was the same day, but confused as to why she was wet. She kept trying to leave the hospital, concerned about not having enough time to set up the classroom for the first day of school. When she was sent to the psych ward for further monitoring, she was diagnosed with 
Dissociative fugue? 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 <laughs> fugue? It's, sorry, fugue. Dissociative fugue. <laughs> yes. You guessed it. The professionals believed that something traumatic had triggered her state, and they even tried hypnosis to coax her memories to return. I wish that I could stop the segment here with a happy ending, but unfortunately there is more to her case. Flashing forward to 2012, when Hannah disappeared again on the first day of school at a new job in Maryland and woke up two days later in a creek. Now to 2017, four years after she moved to St. Thomas, a U.S. Virgin Island, to teach at a Montessori school, Hurricane Irma devastated the area. Hannah had gone to talk to her ex-boyfriend before he evacuated and seemed rather upset after the fact. She was actually the only one of her friends and close circle or even distant circle that didn't evacuate the island. She went missing again. This time, her car was found at Sapphire Beach and her keys, skirt, and sandals were found at a beachside bar. But Hannah had yet to be found. Some people believe that she hopped on a boat off the island and is still stuck in a fugue state, even though there have been no sightings of her like the other two times, while others have noted her pattern of turning up in bodies of water and think that she was in the ocean when the hurricane hit. However, experts say that based on the patterns of the tide, her body would have washed back on shore, even with the second hurricane, Maria, hitting the island days after Irma. What's interesting to note is that all of her disappearances coincided with the start of the school year. Hmm. So based on your your explanation, right, and the right. professional determination of what disassociative amnesia is and how it presents, it seems as though she went for a run. Something mm -hmm. happened to her. And whether that was away from a body of water and the way she escaped was through a body of water. Mm -hmm. But because every single time a new school year started or almost every time she disappeared it was the start of a new school year she would turn up in a body of water it seems as though something happened with all of those factors and mm -hmm. we already know the first day of school was the day that something happened right and we can we can speculate on the water but it just it seems like something really bad happened and because she never got the proper help it kept happening Right. This can also be stress-related as well. So the fact that it's starting at the beginning of a school year, we could be looking at multiple factors at this point. But the thing with that that's interesting is it wasn't when she always started a new job and it wasn't every new school year. So I feel like because— It just happened to be the last two, like the first school year and then the body of water with the, the run happened. Yeah. Okay. So I, I would assume that something happened to her. I, it honestly, it really does feel like that. Yeah. Um, Unfortunately, it does seem that way. And like I said, in this case, it was deadly for her. And that's why Pamela stressed you need to get the proper help if you feel like you are missing a chunk of time. Yes, 100%. Another important case to discuss in relation to Stephen's sudden memory loss would be the disappearance of Lars Matank. While this isn't related to trauma like Hannah's most likely was, it could have something to do with a head injury he suffered. It was February 1986 when Lars and his friends went to Varna, Bulgaria. Towards the end of the trip, him and his friends went to a bar. This is where Lars would get into a heated argument with some other men over whose favorite soccer team was better. I guess as men do. I've never understood that. I really, I, I can't. Why are you fighting over a team that probably doesn't know that you exist? <sighs> Pick me. It, that that was rude. I'm sorry. We oh, no. understand if you're passionate about we sports. We understand We're not your judging passion. You. 
Yeah, I get your passion, but like, don't actually like assault someone over it. Oh my God. Yep. Well, he left the bar before any of his friends and they didn't see him until the next day when he turned up with an injured jaw and a ruptured eardrum. So it is really, really hard to rupture someone's eardrum. You basically have to clap over their ear with your hand cup to create enough pressure to... Your, your eardrum and that's so painful a ruptured eardrum is so painful and it's it requires a lot of force against the side of someone's head and wow I, I swear I only know this because I trained MMA but your knockout mm-hmm. zones or your sensitive areas are the your temples the side of your head mm-hmm. and if you get hit in that area and your jaw by the way you can get knocked out by getting hit in your jaw but if you injure the side of your head That is where a concussion would occur in which a brain bleed would happen. So if you hit the front or back of your head, you're fine. But the side of your head, that's a lot more sensitive. Mm -hmm. Fun facts with Kelsey and Pam. (laughs) Now you know how to knock someone out. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That felt right. And it wasn't. (laughs) It would seem as though he got jumped, which is also what he claimed happened. Now, here's where the inconsistencies start to pop up. His friends all had different stories. Some said that the men from the bar found him and assaulted him, while others said that the men had someone to do it for them. Either way, it seems as though they all had a consistent perpetrator in their accounts. He went to see a doctor who gave him antibiotics in case of infection and told him that he would not be able to travel until his eardrum healed. Because of the pressure going up in a plane and raising altitude, it would cause Mm -hmm. permanent damage in his eardrum. Because a ruptured eardrum can heal. Probably takes a hot minute, though, I assume. It does, yeah. So because of this, he had to stay in Bulgaria while all of his friends went home. It is important to note that his friends didn't want to leave him, but he was insistent that they should. Lars changed hotels and ended up staying at the one near the airport, and over the next several days, his behavior would become more erratic. In one instance, he can be seen hiding inside the elevator, leaving at midnight and then coming back. He would also call his mother and whisper furiously over the phone that people were trying to kill him or rob him. Lars also went as far as to text her, asking that she freeze his credit cards. It was July 8th, 2014, so again, a few months, Mm -hmm. when Lars was finally able to fly again. He showed up at the airport on time to see the doctor that worked there. He was cleared to travel, but something was still very wrong. Lars was acting even more suspicious and erratic and was overheard by himself in the patient room saying, I don't want to die here. I have to get out of here. This is when he takes off running out of the building and as seen on CCTV footage from the airport, he jumps the fence and vanishes into the adjacent forest. He has not been seen since. So it is safe to say that Lars Matank suffered from a catastrophic head injury. His symptoms would be classified as suspicious and delirious, not paranoid. The fact that he went from a normal average 28-year-old man to someone with erratic and seemingly psychotic behaviors that started immediately after his head injury would indicate that said injury is the cause. While Mm -hmm. it's not a common symptom of physical trauma to your brain, it can still happen. According to an article published by PubMed on the National Institute of Health, quote, triggers pathophysiological processes that generally result in a psychosis after a delay of one to five years, end quote. 
which would be the average response. That doesn't mean that Lars's process didn't evolve quicker. Another article published on National Institute of Health's database states, quote, Psychotic syndromes occur more frequently in individuals who have had traumatic brain injury than the general population. They go on to talk about how these behaviors can present similarly to schizophrenia and how there are researched, quote, links between psychosis and TBI, end quote. These symptoms can range from hallucinations and delusions to epilepsy and, well, full-blown psychotic episodes, although the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery, and Psychiatry set out to systematically study what they call psychotic disorder due to traumatic brain injury, PDTBI, and the DSM-4, which has since been replaced by the well-respected DSM-5, it classifies the diagnostic points for PDTBI as such. Presence of hallucinations or delusions, evidence that the psychosis is a direct consequence of traumatic brain injury, psychosis is not better accounted for by another mental disorder, meaning prior mental illness was not present before the TBI, psychosis does not occur exclusively during a state of delirium. A commonality I found when diving into neuropsychiatry of the psychotic disorder due to traumatic brain injury, otherwise known as TBI, it can result in serious and debilitating neuropsychiatric disorders. Actually, the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Strokes stated that, quote, TBI depends upon the severity of the injury, the location of the injury, and the age and general health of the patient. Some common disabilities include problems with cognition, such as thinking, memory, and reasoning, sensory processing, such as sight, hearing, touch, taste, and smell, communication, expression, and understanding, as well as behavior or mental health, which can lead to depression, anxiety, personality changes, aggression, acting out, and social inappropriateness, end quote. So it's crazy to know that these separate sections of your brain can trigger such drastic reactions. I also think it's very interesting that sociopathy in some serial killers can be traced back to them having a frontal lobe head injury Mm -hmm. during the years of development and the early stages of their brain's development. Like, there's a serial killer, her name is Nanny Doss, and she had a traumatic brain injury after riding a train when she was really young. Mm -hmm. And she has repeatedly said that everything changed for her then. So, of course, we don't know if Lars met all of the criteria as he didn't receive the proper care after his TBI or what we're assuming is such. But there is a story that is important to discuss in relation to this. Jim McDonald's and his wife, Anne, lived a happy life. They'd been married for 25 years and nothing out of the ordinary ever seemed to be the matter. In the late winter and early spring seasons of 1971, Jim had a few minor accidents, I guess you could say. He slipped on ice while carrying out the trash. He hit the back of his head and hurt his back. A couple days later, he was driving to work when he couldn't stop sneezing. This caused him to crash into a telephone pole. For the second time that week, he hit his head. Then he got dizzy at work and fell down a flight of stairs and again, hit his head. Oh my goodness. 10 days after this, he hit another pole after losing control of his car and was knocked out cold. This is when Jim was finally brought to the hospital and treated for a cerebral concussion. It was March 29th when Jim went on a walk to clear his headache, a walk that usually only took him 15 minutes, but he never returned home. 
It turns out that during his walk, Jim completely forgot who he was. He ended up in Philly and assumed the name James Peters after seeing it on an advertisement, and he had no idea what his real name actually was. In the mid-20th century, it was easy to get a new social security card, which slightly concerning to me that you didn't have to you used to have to present any form of like identification, like passport. He just showed up. Birth certificate. Yeah, he was like, hey, my name's James. Can I have a social security card? And they gave it to him. Someone's getting fired. I, that was the precedent back then, though. That's the thing. Are you kidding? No, I'm not. I wish I was. That's ridiculous. <laughs> there could be so many boomers nowadays that have different names <laughs> that just randomly <laughs> chose to get a new social security card. And we wouldn't I want know. a new name. Let me get a new name. Thank you. And then on one random evening in November of 1985, after building a life for himself, Jim started to slightly remember who he was. He woke up one day and was like, I think I used to be a mailman. And then in another instance, he was like, I think I lived in this one town with these trees, but but I can't really remember. And then December 22nd, the same year, when James Jim fell and hit his head, yet again. But it didn't stop there. He fell again later that night. And two days later, Jim, or James, woke up and suddenly remembered everything. He's thinking to himself, oh my god, I have a wife. Oh my god, it's been 15 years. Is she even still alive? What's happened to her? Has she remarried? Like, And he was terrified, as I would assume he would be. Yeah, how confusing would that be? 15 years later, you're like, oh shit. I had a whole whole life. (laughs) I have this whole other life that I have not lived in 15 years. So after 15 years, and by the way, they were married for like 20 something years. He returned home and she had not remarried. She had not moved on and she was still alive and they resumed their life as normal. But the thing is, is that when he moved to Philadelphia, he started working at this place, met a waitress and they he kind of became like her father figure and would do all every holiday with her and her family. And so he Mm. left one life behind for his old life, but Mm -hmm. both lives were lived for almost an equal amount of time, which is crazy. Uh, yeah, that's pretty fucking insane. Yeah. I mean, of course they were married for 20 years. We don't know how long they were together. So Jim's story exemplifies that TBI can also cause amnesia, which is absolutely terrifying. And I I dare I say slightly fascinating. I mean, it's absolutely scary, but it is really interesting. And the fact that he was able to just snap back after he hit his head, after he hit his head. And what is this guy and his affinity for hitting his head? Yeah, I really feel bad for Jim. Yeah. Like, not not just the fact that he, like, so-called lost 15 years with his previous wife, Anne, his, well, his current wife, Anne, but the fact that he banged his head, like, a lot. Like, more than I think an average person does. And he sneezed so many times that he crashed his car. I've sneezed before while driving, and I will say it's super scary because my eyes are closed, and that freaks me out while driving. So, I mean, this guy, I really feel bad for Jim. I think there was, like, an episode of Chicago Fire or mm-hmm. some one of those ambulance chaser shows where someone sneezed and, like, wrecked into a school bus of children or something. It was like, that's while they were driving. And he was like, that's 15 seconds of my life. I'll never get back. And every time I sneeze while I'm driving, I think about that. 
Yeah, same. I just think about the horrendous consequences of my sneeze on the road. When it comes to weird and random psychotic-like behaviors, there's one case that stands out to me. An entire family, for seemingly no reason, fell deep into a delusional state and fled from their home. Monday, August 29th, 2016 in New South Wales should have been any other day for Mark and Jacoba Tromp and their three children, Brianna, Mitchell, and Ella. But it wasn't. The family fell into a paranoid state and fled. No one knows what they were running from, though. The kids were instructed to leave their identifiable items behind, like phones, wallets, credit cards, passports, etc. And I say kids sparingly because they were all in their 20s. Oh, uh, yeah, young adults. (laughs) But Mitchell snuck his phone into the car. Once it was discovered, though, he was forced to throw it out of the window, and they tried to make him believe that it could be used to track them. Friends of the Tromps soon became concerned when none of them would answer their phones and called the cops. When police arrived at their homes, everything was in disarray, including all their financial documents strewn around the floor as though they were looking for something within them. They knew immediately that the Tromps left with the intention of not being found. Almost 500 miles into their drive in Bathurst, Mitchell left the excursion. I guess that's the best way to say it. It seems as though he was the only one who didn't share in their hysteria, but the family went on without him. They were going to Janolan Caves in Eastern Australia. It was here that Ella and Rihanna also left the adventure, I guess you could say. Mm -hmm. To do so, they stole a car. Which, oh, is an odd choice, if you ask me. Yeah, your parents are telling you to stay under the radar, like nothing that identifies you, so... You stole a car. So they end up in Goulburn, where they are finally able to talk to the police about what has happened. They also report their parents missing. The two then decide to go their own separate ways, which is how Ella is the first to go back to their home to, I guess, she wanted to feed their horse because they lived on a farm, and Mm -hmm. she was closely followed by Mitchell. While Ella and Mitchell seemed rather lucid and, well, very confused by the sudden paranoia their parents displayed, Rihanna was not okay in the slightest bit. She was found, as it's described in all official articles, quote, in a catatonic state, end quote, in the back of someone's truck or ute, and had no idea where she was or how she got there. She was found by the car's owner, who promptly called 911, and was taken away in an ambulance and brought to the local hospital, where she was treated in a psych ward. Now, Mark and Jacoba seem completely unfazed that their children were now gone and ended up driving another 372 miles back in the way they came to Wangarada. This is where they went separate ways. Jacoba was then found 217 miles away without the car. Like, she was ditched and Mark took the car. 217 miles away in Yass. And oh. was walking north and very agitated. Uh, yeah, I would be too. She was also taken to the Goulburn psych ward where she was admitted alongside her daughter. Full of this, Mark was still out in Wangarada, apparently having severe bouts of road rage. He was tailgating a couple driving slowly because they were playing Pokemon Go. Aw, they were just trying to have a good time. No, The driver stopped the car and Mark did too. He pulled up behind them, got out of the car, and started to run towards them, only to stop in the middle of the road while staring them dead in the eye. 
road rage is terrifying. But like it, it's so scary. But also he's just staring at them. This wasn't road rage. This was like he got out of the car. He just took off in their direction and then just stopped. And then he ran away into an adjacent park and disappeared. Yeah, I've got some questions for Mark. (laughs) Mark was eventually found after Ella and Mitchell appeared on the news pleading for his safe return. As the police car who took him away from the road, he was zigzagging around on because he was like running back and forth down this road on foot. He flipped off the local news cameras and was then given to his brother who handled his care from there. I think it was a couple years later that the charges for Ella and Rihanna when they stole the car were finally dropped because of yeah the bizarre situation um yeah I'd, I'd say this was pretty bizarre so again it might not be a TBI symptom it might not be disassociated fugue but it's just another way that something can happen and a flip just gets switched honestly Absolutely. And the fact that their parents did this in such a way that was so, what's a good word for this? Like not sporadic. I think sporadic. Yeah, maybe. It just all of a sudden, just like immediate fear, anger, I mean, unexplainable behavior. I, I honestly don't know how I would react. It was, it was really weird. Some sources say that they were slowly falling into paranoia it is important to note they all had a good relationship. They were all well-loved by their neighbors. They were a hardworking family that ran a little mini farm. There, There is something called mass hysteria where one person or two people in a close-knit group start to panic and then everyone else starts to panic and then they kind of get a shared delusion of sort. Like a domino effect. Yeah, it's sort of like if you stop in the middle of a busy hallway and you look up and you go oh my God, what is that? Everyone's going to stop and look up. Right. But it was it would be if you saw something, hallucinated something there, and because you were sharing the space with these people, they also saw it, but nothing was actually there. That's actually insane. It's, it's a very, um, I, I wouldn't say fringe because it's not fringe, but the psychiatric and psychological and neurological community is very split on this, that they're like, oh yeah, mass hysterica mass hysteria, mass delusion, that's real. And then the other side is like, uh, no, <laughs> we don't believe that. That's y- Your brains don't communicate like that. Yeah, you're making this up. Thank you so much. So a well-known TBI symptom, other than the ones we've already discussed, is language impairment. It usually is seen in pediatric cases and obviously depends on the part of the brain injured. But there are some cases where someone wakes up from a head injury-induced coma being able to speak an entirely new language. Ruben, and I'm sorry if I pronounced his last name wrong, I think it's Nasoma or Soma, that's N-S-E-M-O-H, played soccer in high school and in 2016, when he was 16 years old, Ruben suffered from a concussion during a game. This head injury deeply affected his ability to concentrate, and then when he suffered another concussion, he fell into a coma. After Ruben woke up, he was able to speak Spanish like it was his first language. What was once a high school-level skill now became a fluency. It's actually a well-documented phenomena called foreign accent syndrome. So what's interesting about foreign accent syndrome, as stated by the Cleveland Clinic, FAS is a brain-related condition that affects your ability to make sounds correctly. So interestingly enough, it isn't an accent change at all. 
It stated that it's very rare and that it's often treatable and maybe even reversible. However, there's different types such as structural, functional, mixed, and developmental. So some of these symptoms of FAS include talking speed. So an example could be talking slowly. Uh, this also includes pitch and tone, articulations, stressing of certain syllables, length of sounds, volume, and inflections. Per the Cleveland Clinic, those are only main effects of FAS. This doesn't even go into the different types of FAS and the symptoms of those as previously mentioned. So just to wrap this up in regards to any treatment for FAS, they stated that treatment for FAS revolves around treating whatever caused it and that those treatments can vary widely, but that all cases of FAS could potentially benefit from speech therapy. So all of these stories are to explain to you guys how different traumas to your brain or different, I guess, traumas, period, can right. affect your perception of reality or your perception of self. And that's the thing is that perception is so finicky, is our brains are so fragile and we don't even think about it. The fact that Stephen forgot 15 months of his life and went on some weird adventure or did whatever he did can speak to a lot of different possibilities. And I do want to bring up again the last thing he remembers, being cold and scared of being stuck in the frozen darkness forever. To me, that's like a cognitive awareness that mm -hmm. something is happening in your brain that you don't really have control of. It, it kind of screams head injury to me. Yeah. But because Stephen refused to talk to the press after what happened, I guess his concern was that People were going to accuse him of making it up for fame. And even though he never spoke to the press, people still accused him of that. And he got, like, absolutely no monetary benefit out of this. That's just ridiculous. But the thing is, is that if we, if we look at it, he wasn't in any financial trouble. He was mm -hmm. actually about to get his father's house. His dad was going to sign the house over to him. He had a girlfriend in Europe. And he was happy. He was, there was nothing wrong in his life. And then suddenly, boom, like he just blips, right? So right. it makes me feel like this is the most plausible explanation of what could have happened. And while you all know, I, I am your favorite paranormal believer, there's something to his last memory that really screams head injury or trauma to me. And what was his last memory? Being cold and scared of being stuck in the frozen darkness forever. Poor Steven. That's such a confusing, like, to not remember that, and then just to have this overwhelming fear of just like, I don't want to be stuck there. I don't want to be stuck and frozen and cold. Like, it just makes you rack your brain about what this guy went through. And I hate that people were making such incorrect assumptions and like trying to be so shitty towards him like oh he's just making it up for fame like he didn't even talk to the press like fuck you guys he wanted to get away from his wife he wanted to get away he had financial yeah. struggles like why would he come back then i mean some people had a interesting theory when i posted it on tiktok is that mm -hmm. he did something and that goes back to your someone who committed a crime could also mm -hmm. suffer from this due to the actions that they took. Mm -hmm. Or he also could have witnessed something. My, my thing is, where did he go? 
he has all of these hitchhiking signs. No one saw him. And this case was so famous and so sensationalized, even though he wanted his privacy at the time. He has since, like I said, written a book about it. Mm -hmm. But where did he go and why did no one recognize him? Why did no one come forward after the case blew up and say, hey, I saw him. Oh, hey, he was running this marathon. Like, how was he not recognized? Right, because with the teacher that you talked about, how she was spotted at an Apple store, people saw her. And Stephen, he had totally different clothes on when this happened. So it, it baffles me that no one saw him anywhere, like at all. No, he just appeared. But there's the other thing I want to talk about, which is the mismanagement of the case. Mm -hmm. And I believe that he would have been found and we would have known what happened if they handled, if they took the proper procedural steps, right? Instead of just opening and closing the case. And I know I covered this very, very, very briefly in the first episode. But to recap for you guys, because there was a 200-yard path of footprints that led past the edge of the lake and stopped, authorities said, oh, he drowned. And Pamela, uh, you have worked with cold case teams and you have worked with detectives and lawyers and people who basically map out these cases and solve them. Mm -hmm. And so just to backtrack, 200-year path of footprints, right? Mm -hmm. They said he drowned and then they closed the case and didn't look for him anymore. So what... What would you have done differently in that in that scenario if you were on that case or working with someone that was on the case? What what would your recommendation have been to stop the breach of procedure? I guess I would have to say that when dealing with so let's say that you get this case put on your desk 10 years after the fact and you open it up and there's just not a lot to go off of. From my experience of working alongside some detectives while I've done my many (laughs) internships is you go straight to the source. You go straight to the people if they're still around. Um, And sometimes you can't. Unfortunately, sometimes you get these cases and they're so old that a lot of witnesses that made statements or any of that sort, they've passed on. Um, So if, for instance, we got this case, I would definitely say go to the sources. So go to go to whoever was who made a statement, go to whoever he was friends with to try and put some pieces together. The thing that confuses me, too, is like besides the whole psychological analysis mm-hmm. is the footprints. That is bizarre. And that's why for next episode, as we always do for the season finale, we're going to we're going to discuss it and we're going to talk about everything that we have gone over. And we're going to answer audience questions. If you've noticed on Spotify specifically, we have a Q&A section. So if you have any questions, you can either message the Instagram, haunted.detective, message me or Pam, send a message on Discord if you're in the group, or send a message on TikTok, or just put it in the Q&A, and we will answer them to the best of our ability. I think that, I think I'm torn, and hopefully next episode we will be able to discuss this enough with the people involved in creating this season. So you guys will get to meet Alex briefly, who has edited and re-edited most of these episodes. Last (laughs) season, you met Marcos. Unfortunately, he can't be with us this time. 
but I honestly, I want to come to a conclusion, but with everything I've given you guys, I just... <sighs> what happened to him? Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There's, we, there's a lot of possible answers, and I think that's just what makes this so interesting. So tune in next week to the Haunted Detective podcast for the season finale, which is absolutely crazy to me. I know. I, it feels like yesterday that I was writing season one, let alone recording and finishing season two. Look at us now. We've done it. Yay. Yay. Oh my God. <laughs> that was so insane. <laughs> that was beautiful. Okay, guys. <laughs> We're going to close the case file on Stephen Kubaki today. Don't forget to leave us a nice review or an honest review because that helps. Reviews help us get seen. And share this with your friends. Share it on your story and say something nice because we are sensitive and we will cry. And I don't know about you guys, but I think Alex will cry too if you say something mean after episode seven. So be nice to Alex, dude. Alex is literally a godsend. I don't think you guys understand. Get up a, a round of applause for, for Alex. He's just the best. Alex, edit that in. <laughs> Don't forget to check in next week for the season finale because, ooh, wow, that's crazy. Time goes way too fast. <laughs> Till next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>